Well, let me say a word of prayer and then we'll get into our text this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open the Bible. How tremendous it is that you have spoken to us by your Son, as the book of Hebrews says, and you've spoken to us by the Word, that we have a Bible that can be held in one hand, and yet it reveals the mysteries of God. It reveals your requirements of us. It reveals the glories of your Son, the ministry of the Spirit, and our future destiny in Christ. And so it is always our privilege to open our Bibles. May you be blessed this day as your people listen as an act of worship. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Our Christmas meditations this season are centered around what I'm calling ancient anticipation Highlighting just a few of the major prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. If we can say that Mary introduced Jesus to the shepherds, what about the person who introduced Jesus to the world? He's the one I'd like to look at today. This morning I'd like to look at the official forerunner of Jesus, the one who announced his arrival. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and to help us understand Isaiah 40, we actually need to go to a different scene in a slightly different time. The scene is with the prophet Daniel. Daniel was excited, he was overjoyed, he was in awe, he was thrilled. Why was he so thrilled? Why was he so excited? Well, Daniel chapter 9 tells us, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, from the seed of the Medes, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, discerned in the books the number of the years concerning which the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah the prophet for the fulfillment of the laying waste of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. What is he reading? He's reading from Jeremiah 25. We know exactly where he read. This whole land will be a waste place and an object of horror, And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are fulfilled that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation declares Yahweh for their iniquity, even the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. The first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, was about 539 BC. Daniel, among the first captives taken by Babylon from Judah, he'd been taken in 605 BC, It means that of the 70 years that God had decreed Judah to be in captivity, about 66 of them had passed. He had been in exile in Babylon for 66 years. He was now in his 80s. His memories of home in Judah and Jerusalem are seven decades old. But the time of waiting was almost over. And in response, Daniel offers one of the greatest prayers in the Bible, his prayer of confession and petition found in the rest of Daniel 9. His wait is almost over. And Isaiah chapter 40 picks up where that story leaves off. We find ourselves in Isaiah 40 at one of the most dramatic and stunning section breaks of any book in the Bible. It's on the level of moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's on the level of moving from law to grace. It's on the level of moving from judgment to mercy. In chapters 1 through 39, the primary enemy of Israel is Assyria. And now all of a sudden we fast forward the situation over a century later than chapter 39. And now the concern is Babylon. And in this narrative transitional section, the story section of chapters 36 through 39, we're focused on the Lord's dealing with Judah's king, Hezekiah. Now, generally speaking, Hezekiah was a great king. But for the purposes of the reader, Isaiah placed events out of order chronologically so that the last glimpse we get of Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah is that of selfishness and pride and coming punishment. It's dark, it's dreary. And because of this same rebellious attitude in all of the southern kingdom of Judah and because of the sins of Hezekiah's coming son, Manasseh, God would send Babylon to judge his people. 
Now, in our Bibles, between chapter 39, verse 8, and chapter 40, verse 1, there's about a half inch of white space. But what happens in that white space is epic. Over the coming decades, Babylon grew in strength until it finally crushed Assyria about 90 years after Isaiah wrote prophetically. The Babylonian Empire began spreading, and when Nebuchadnezzar took the throne in 605 B.C., Judah, the little country where Isaiah was, now fell in the boundaries of the new Babylonian Empire. He issued a decree to Judah, Nebuchadnezzar did, that she would pay tribute to him. And part of this tribute was that Judah's king would serve Nebuchadnezzar. What happened then? 2 Kings 24.1 says, In his days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And so Jehoiakim rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar attacked, he besieged Jerusalem. And to make sure that Judah knew who was in charge, Nebuchadnezzar demanded hostages for King Jehoiakim to prove his allegiance to Babylon. And one of those hostages was Daniel. Babylon came again in 597 and attacked Jerusalem. They came again in 587. And then in 586, they destroyed Jerusalem, carrying off all those who weren't killed. Now Judah's been destroyed. Jerusalem is, is burnt to the ground. And the Jews who weren't killed are now exiled to Babylon. And now, having been there for some time, Isaiah's prophetic writings of chapters 40 through 66 begin to take incredible significance for them. Because this is where the grace of God begins to show through. God's plan for Israel begins to take shape. There, there won't any longer be a divided kingdom of Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Soon he's going to restore the nation, at least a remnant, a small remnant. But even in the midst of offering this hope for the immediate future to the exiles in that day, Isaiah prophetically weaves into this story the true and living hope of Israel, the Messiah of God, who would be named Jesus. Isaiah, writing prophetically to exiled Israelites, he changes tone from judgment and doom in chapters 1 through 39. And now in Isaiah 40, verse 1, The tone changes. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has been fulfilled, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all her sins. This seems to be God's instruction to Isaiah to comfort his people. We should contrast this with God's call to Isaiah. What the first message was, was very different. Isaiah 6 records this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. In other words... God commissioned Isaiah to go preach a message that they would reject. Now, if I was given that job, I would ask the same question Isaiah did. Lord, how long? How long should I do this? God answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is devastated to desolation. And Yahweh has removed men far away and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But now, Isaiah's mission of declaring judgment has, for the most part, ended. And now God commissions him, comfort, oh, comfort my people. It's a word that means to console them, to give relief, even to to say to cheer them up, to speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Judah had declared war on God by virtue of her turning away from the law, but the war was over. God was declaring peace because her national sin was forgiven. As a nation, she had taken full punishment, the 70 years. By the way, why 70 years of exile and captivity? Did God just kind of pull that number out of a hat? Well, Israel was God's covenant nation. They entered into covenant with him at Mount Sinai. 
that they would obey His law and that He would be their God. The sign of a true believer, it always has been, is that he desired to keep the law because of his love for the Lord. And one of the laws that the nation was given by God was the law of the Sabbath. Both a Sabbath day, a day of rest every week, is a sign of God's covenant with Israel, and a Sabbath year. Every seven years, this is where we get the term sabbatical, by the way. Here's the law. Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 2, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I am giving to you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to Yahweh. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its produce. But during the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field, nor prune your vineyard. In other words, Israel was to learn to trust God, so much so that they wouldn't plant their crops. And once every seven years, they needed to trust the Lord. And God told them what he would do if they didn't obey him in this. Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 34. If they don't obey, then the land will make up for its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation. And you will be in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and make up for its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it will observe the rest, which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. This is kind of an interesting way of phrasing this. God basically says, if you don't obey my law, the land will. Israel was in the land for about 800 years before Jerusalem fell to Babylon. How many of those years did God judge they were disobedient? 490. They missed the Sabbath year 70 times. 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 20. Those who escaped from the sword, he took away into exile to Babylon, and they were slaves to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had made up for its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were fulfilled. But now they're fulfilled. It's coming. The, the end is coming. God's justice has been fulfilled. He's giving them this exciting comfort and the rest of Chapter 40, he gives them reasons to have hope as they, as they finish their time of waiting. And here's what's amazing. For the 6th century exiled Jew, the one in Babylon now taken over by the Persians, these words bring comfort for their return from exile. But in typical Isaiah fashion, his prophecies have layers to them. They're stacked. Verse 3, a voice is calling. Prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. For the 6th century Jew in exile who has an opportunity to perhaps go home with the the group of 50,000 or so that would eventually return, this is good news. These are fabulous words. A road will be prepared, a way home. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. What, What is that saying? This is smoothing the way. Fill the potholes, lower the hills, make it easier. It's opening a highway to go home and we know exactly when this was fulfilled. Persia had taken over Babylon. Ezra chapter 1 begins, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he had a proclamation passed throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. In other words, a remnant of Israel was going home just about four years after Daniel wrote Daniel chapter 9. But if you know your New Testament at all, when I read verses 3 and 4, you skipped ahead because you're already seeing that Isaiah layers, he stacks his prophecies. That this isn't just about a few exiles going home. This road is the way for Yahweh. It is the road for God. 
It is the road for God to come. And your thoughts, because you know your New Testament, turned to John the Baptist, didn't it? The prophesied herald and messenger of Christ. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to spend the rest of our time there. John the Baptist is often called the forerunner, the one to announce the coming of Christ. This is patterned after the ancient Near Eastern practice of officials going ahead of a dignitary or a king to announce his soon coming. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying, In the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the region of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and was eating locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now it happened that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. I'd like to look at this outworking of the prophecy of Isaiah, and I'd like to show you five elements to the forerunner's ministry. Five major elements to the forerunner's ministry. The first major element we'll call the forerunner's presentation. His presentation. The first four verses cover this. Now, you may recall that John the Baptist, his father, Zechariah, He was a priest, and when it was his turn to serve in the temple, and there was a rotating system, both he and his wife, Elizabeth, were advanced in years. Luke chapter 1, verse 7, and they had no children. And while Zechariah was serving in the sanctuary, burning incense before the Lord, Luke 1, beginning in verse 11, says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will not drink any wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now the angel says, your prayer has been heard. We don't know what the prayer is. The best guess is that either he's praying for a child or he's praying for the coming Messiah, or maybe it's both. In either case, both requests are going to be met. The home of Zechariah and Elizabeth was a pious home, a godly home, a humble home. There was nothing hypocritical in this home to cause young John to doubt his high calling. There was no cause for rebellion at the prospect of the set-apart Nazarite life that had been described by the angel where he would be uh, completely set apart to only serve the Lord. His mother, Elizabeth, had high regard for Mary and certainly had high regard for Jesus even when Jesus was in the womb. His parents were already old when he was born. And so John spent his early days in the desert, filled with the Holy Spirit, meditating on the truth of the coming Messiah, developing a rugged and an uncompromising spirit. In fact, where he was in the wilderness, he could look from the wilderness and he could see the barren Dead Sea region where God's judgment had fallen in a fury so many centuries earlier to the cities on the plain, to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
it was a continual reminder to him of the reality of the judgment of God. And when he came to the region of Jordan, he went under this same weight of responsibility to warn Israel that they must turn back to a genuine faith in God and that the King and the Savior was coming. And so John is, as confirmed by verses 2 and 3, the one prophesied in Isaiah 40. We could also include Malachi 3, verse 1, where Malachi writes, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. The angel in Luke 1, when he spoke to Zechariah, he also referenced Malachi chapter 4. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land, devoting it to destruction. So John the Baptist is presented as the one coming to announce the coming of the Messiah. He announced Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the human name of the Savior. Simply means Savior. Christ is his title. It's the Greek version of Messiah, the anointed one, the king. John is described here as the voice of one crying. doesn't mean to weep. It means shouting loudly, proclaiming, preaching, giving proclamation. Now, a little point of detail here. We want to be as precise as we can. The Legacy Standard Bible begins the quote of John's message in verse 3 with, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But the Isaiah text is clear what the message is. Prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. So it would be more accurate to say here in John, or in Mark chapter 1 rather, the voice of one crying, in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. This is an important point. Because not only is there a near prophetic reference to the wilderness between Babylon and Judea, as I mentioned earlier in Isaiah, There's a bigger picture that John's illustrating. He's ministering in the wilderness because spiritually speaking, Israel is in the wilderness once again hearing from a prophet of God. Why is this significant? 1,500 years earlier at Mount Sinai, in the wilderness, God met with Israel as a nation to call them to himself. He had just rescued them from Egypt and God used a human emissary, a prophet, Moses, to officially introduce himself to Israel. And now Israel has hopelessly broken covenant with God. And once again, God comes graciously to them. Where? In the wilderness. I have a question. God is all-powerful. He is glorious. He is majestic. And certainly Jesus Christ is. Why would God's plan be to send a forerunner for Jesus? Wouldn't the glory, wouldn't the majesty, wouldn't the miraculous power of Christ be sufficient? Couldn't Jesus have just showed up and started healing people and made that his entrance? Isaiah prophesied of a forerunner. Malachi prophesied of a forerunner. What does this speak to? It speaks to the level of Israel's spiritual blindness, their spiritual deadness. This is an indictment of just how blind to the true and living God and to their own sinful rebellion they actually were. Or if I could put it this way, only a blind man needs to be told that the sun is shining. And so John the Baptist comes to begin to soften these hardened hearts and to prepare them to see their Messiah. Our first major element is the forerunner's presentation Second major element, the forerunner's proclamation. His proclamation. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's the heart of John's message. It is to repent. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all indicate this. Matthew 3, 2 gives the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke 3, verse 3 John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, just so we can be as precise and detailed here as possible, the core of John's proclamation is not a call 
for those coming to him to change their feelings. It's not a call for some sort of emotional experience. It wasn't even a call for the sensation of sorrow, although that most often accompanies repentance. It was a call to repent. And it's a very specific Greek word that means to change your mind, to change your loyalty, to change your attitude. It's an emphasis on the change of purpose and loyalty. You change your mind about how loyal you are to sin, that you don't want to be loyal to sin. John's proclamation is precisely in line with all the Old Testament prophets who frequently called upon Israel to turn to God from their backslidden ways. And in Hebrew, they they would use a word that means to turn around, to turn or to return. Joel 2.12, Yet even now declares Yahweh, Return to me with all your heart. Isaiah 55.7, and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Ezekiel thirty three eleven. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. So when you put together the Old Testament idea of turning, the New Testament idea of changing your mind, John's command to repent is a plea For God's earthly people to turn away from their sin and toward their Savior. This is very important to note this. And I think this might be a point of confusion for some. John was calling Israel as Jews still under the Old Covenant. They're still under the Mosaic Covenant. Basically what he's he's preaching is bring yourselves as Jews back into covenant obedience to God. This is how you prepare for Messiah. In fact, verse 5 says at the end that the crowds were confessing their sins, literally confessing out loud. Now, I want you to imagine this. Huge crowds, public confession of specific sins before being baptized. This was not some sort of non-specific, ineffective, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. That's not the gospel. This was a confession of specifically how you have broken God's law. God's law says this, but I did that. God's law says this, but I did that. God's law says this, but I did that. This would have taken days and days and days, people coming and confessing every sin they can think of, quoting the law of God and then, and then proclaiming how they broke it. It's not entirely dissimilar to how we do our baptisms here. That if you want to be baptized publicly, you will proclaim the sins that you are confessing. Why was John calling Israel to repent? Let me give you three reasons. The first reason we'll call the salvation reason. The salvation reason. They're repenting in preparation for Messiah. He's speaking to individuals. They must individually prepare for the coming of the Messiah by repenting of their covenant treachery. John's baptism was an outward symbol of preparing for Christ, of the cleansing of sin. Just to be clear, this is not Christian baptism per se. These are still Jews under the old covenant. There's the salvation reason. There's a second reason I'll call the church reason. The church reason. Skipping down to verse 8. John says, I baptize you with water, but he, that is Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist doesn't give the full significance of this at this time, but it would be realized on the day of Pentecost with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which baptized, which just means to immerse. It immersed the people of God into the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For also by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. So there's the salvation reason, there's the church reason, and then there's the kingdom reason. The kingdom reason, this has to do more with the nation as a whole. This has to do with national salvation. In Matthew 3, verse 2, John preaches... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is coming. The Old Testament promised kingdom is available. The king is arriving. This is a call to national salvation. This is a call to the nation to repent, to Israel as a people to receive her king. Let me put this in theological terms. John commanded repentance 
for a soteriological reason, salvation, for an ecclesiological reason, the church reason, and for an eschatological reason, the kingdom. Just to summarize that, John called upon the nation to repent, to turn from their sins, and turn to their king because the Old Testament promised kingdom was arriving. Why? Because the king was coming. He proclaimed a personal salvation, a national salvation, forgiveness of sins, and an establishment of the coming kingdom on earth. You see, the caveat here was, and Jesus would make this very clear all throughout his ministry, to participate in the coming kingdom, you didn't just need to be born a Jew if you're part of Israel. You needed to have your sin removed. John was tasked with exposing and denouncing sin. He had the ultimate wow factor, though, in that the one who could remove sin was right there in his midst when he was preaching. Jesus is the one of whom Hebrews 9.26 says he has been manifested to put away sin. And in, in John's preaching, he could literally point to the sacrificial Lamb of God and to the Son of God. That was his proclamation. It's the third major element, the forerunner's purpose. The forerunner's purpose. Verse 5 again. And all the region of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Now we have to go back to Mount Sinai again. 1,500 years earlier to understand John's purpose. At the first wilderness meeting at Sinai, Israel accepted and they ratified the Mosaic Covenant or the Israelite Covenant. Exodus 24, 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said... All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Fast forward to Jesus' day. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When Jesus was born and when the Gospels opened, Israel is still under the Old Covenant. The Old Testament prophets, those like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, Moses and Micah and the others, They spoke prophetically that Messiah was coming. The Son of God was coming to Israel to offer spiritual salvation. They they preached this century after century after century. And then nothing. For 400 years, God was silent. No prophets, no encouragement, no preaching. Until... John the Baptist appeared. Now, once again in the wilderness, God is calling to his people. He's coming to them in person, and he sent a forerunner to say this. John's singular purpose, his one purpose on this earth, was to be the final Old Testament, Old Covenant prophet. Now, this helps us understand the angel's words to John's father, Zechariah, In Luke 1, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Later in Jesus' ministry, Jesus would condemn the Jewish leaders for being exactly the same as their forefathers. He called Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it in Matthew 23. And John the Baptist would be no different. His ministry led to his imprisonment and to his death. His call was to pronounce judgment. And as stated so eloquently by the eminent Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, quote, A ministry of the truth does not have lengthy tenure of service when called to pronounce judgment. Here's a typical sermon introduction for John the Baptist. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How's that for an opening? Welcome to Grace Bible Church, you snakes. I bet he didn't take up an offering after that sermon. (laughs) To be the final Old Covenant prophet, to make a call to Israel to receive her long-awaited Savior, that was John's 
singular purpose. Now I have a question for you. John the Baptist was the chosen forerunner of Christ. He's in the Old Testament. Two different major prophets prophesy of him. He baptizes thousands. When John the Baptist spoke, 400 years of God's silence toward Israel was broken. A mighty voice was now heard in all the land until Jerusalem and Judea were turned upside down by this powerful and determined prophet of God. So here's my question. Why wasn't John chosen to be one of the apostles? I'd put him at the head of the list. John had an appointed place. And his appointed place was to be the final chapter of the Old Covenant prophetic core. He would become less so that Jesus could become more. John 1.7 says that he was sent to bear witness to the light and then he would be taken from the stage of redemptive history prior to the inauguration of the new covenant. That was the forerunner's purpose. There's a fourth major element we'll call the forerunner's place. The forerunner's place. His presentation, his proclamation, his purpose, and now his place. Verse 6, And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and was eating locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. John even looks like a, a prophet of old. He was on the earth for one purpose. He had no wife. He had no kids, no home, no ties to society. He's living in the wilderness. He's just eating what he can find on the land. The Lord Jesus himself made it abundantly clear just how important John the Baptist was. Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. His place is that John becomes the culmination. He's not just the last Old Testament, Old Covenant prophet. He becomes the culmination, the summation of all the prophets. He becomes the summary statement of all that the prophets have preached. And we could divide this into two categories, Elijah and all the others. He's likened first to Elijah. You remember the angel told Zechariah this was John's purpose to go in the spirit and power of whom? Of Elijah. Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1.8. They said to him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle girded about his loins. It is Elijah the Tishbite. John the Baptist, same thing. He looks the same. This comparison is extremely important because Elijah is really the prototypical Old Testament prophet. You recall the close of the very last book of the prophet centers on the coming of Elijah with John the Baptist as a partial fulfillment of this. Malachi 4, beginning in verse 5, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. Elijah represented all the prophets at the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus himself in in Matthew 17. Elijah's primary message was to call Israel to repent. That was what he did. Repent, repent. Repent. But the other category, all the other prophets, while preaching repentance, they consistently gave a a, a second message that Messiah was coming to claim his inheritance and to be a part of Messiah's kingdom, you must repent. And so in John, you have the summation of all the prophets. Repent, Elijah, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All the other prophets. That's his place. He summarizes what all the godly men of the Old Testament preached. There's a fifth major element we'll call the forerunner's privilege. The forerunner's privilege. Many people are repenting. People are turning back to Yahweh. But not everyone is happy about this. Two other groups came to the baptisms that John was holding. The Pharisees came. The Pharisees were a sect of Jews who had much power. They created lists and lists of rules in addition to the law of God that they called tradition. They considered themselves to be the epitome of obedience to God, but it was all external. And God demands an internal heart of faith, an internal heart of humility. Then there were the Sadducees. 
They were another sect, they, but they were different. They completely denied the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and so they, they would be the theological liberals of the day. And both those groups, they represented the height of self-righteousness, the height of, of having no true faith, no love for God. They were the ultimate religious, and in fact, though, they were the worst of the worst. They came for baptism, but not because they were repentant. But they felt like they needed to get in on what was going on, to get on the bandwagon, to look good in front of the people. That was always their goal. The Pharisees and the Sadducees always trying to look like the most pious. And there they are in the background, and everyone else is passing them up, so we got to go get baptized. Eventually, they would want to figure out how to turn that to their advantage. So they go to the Jordan, and they get in line. How did John respond? We return to his killer sermon introduction again. You brew the vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that these stones, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. They did not believe that they sinned. Therefore, they had nothing to confess. And therefore, John refused to baptize them. He refused. You see, in their minds, they were already clean, already worthy. And John says, no, you're not. You're bound for the fires of hell. God has never accepted anyone on the basis of external works of righteousness, old covenant or new covenant. He never has. And in fact, those who think they're pleasing God by being religious are actually infuriating God. Do you realize that? Externally, the Pharisees and the Sadducees look the most religious. They live for the law of God, but it's not obedience to the law that saves. It's repentance and faith. Now, I want you to keep that picture in mind. Crowds lined up, humble people confessing their sins one at a time aloud. And then you have off to the side these well-dressed Pharisees and Sadducees standing there. They've just been humiliated. They've just been publicly refused by John by some guy dressed like a wild animal, keep that picture in your mind. Verse 9. Now it happened that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus came to be baptized. Matthew's gospel tells us what happened right at this moment. Matthew 3.14, But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Verse 9 again, Now it happened that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why was Jesus baptized? It certainly wasn't to repent of sin. This was a completely unique event. There's never been one like it since, before, or after. First of all, he was baptized to identify with the Jewish people. I'm one of you. I'm entering into the same waters as you. He was also baptized to inaugurate his ministry. This was the official beginning point of the ministry of Christ. And he was baptized as the moment when he would be empowered by the Holy Spirit for his ministry. He was fully God, but also fully human. And the humanity of Jesus is empowered by the Spirit to fulfill his ministry. Now, remember the scene I told you to keep in your minds. Crowds lining up to be baptized, confessing sins aloud, and the well-dressed Pharisees and Sadducees still standing there, having been refused and humiliated and rebuffed by John because they wouldn't confess sin. And here comes Jesus. He doesn't confess sin either, but John baptizes him. Why did Jesus not confess sin? Because he is holy, holy, holy. He is sinless. And this certainly infuriated the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the false religious, and don't think they would forget it. In verse 10, and immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening 
and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And the voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. What is it that Jesus saw? He saw the heavens opening. It's a word that means torn open. It's the same word used of the, the temple veil when Jesus died on the cross and it was torn asunder. But we get our word schism from it. It's, it's a tearing apart. It's not something gentle. When the heavens are torn open, the Spirit descended upon Jesus to empower him for the ministry. This is unique in Scripture. The Holy Spirit is always presented as invisible. But this is a visual manifestation of the Spirit of God. Now, is this just a a metaphor for how the Spirit of God came? That He came sort of like a dove would? No, it's not. Luke 3.22 says, The Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove. But why a dove? I think if you ask the average Christian, they would say, well, the Holy Spirit is gentle and kind and doves coo and they're, they're kind. That's not the picture. The dove conveys power. Now, how is that? The tradition of the rabbis link the dove with the Holy Spirit going all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's a word that means fluttering, empowering. It is the beginning of wave power. It is the energizing of all of creation. It is the Spirit of God that came and fluttered and created, uh, created the sound waves and, and all energy that is wave energy. In Jewish thought, as revealed especially in the intertestamental times, the Messiah was the bearer of God's Spirit. And this was visual proof that Jesus, as fully human, indeed would bear the Spirit of God. And it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus would heal the sick, raise the dead, calm the seas, preach the word, and he did everything his Father asked of him, all in the power of the Spirit. The sign for the people surrounding this event of Jesus' identity was verse 11, the voice from heaven identifying Jesus. But the heavens, the skies ripping open. What does it say here? It says, in verse 10, And immediately coming up out of the water, he, that is Jesus, saw the heavens opening. Matthew's gospel says the same thing. Matthew's gospel says that the heavens opened to him. This happened in the invisible spirit realm. I mean, look, an event of that size, the heavens opening, being torn apart, that would have spread like wildfire. The heavens opening up, the Spirit of God descending on Jesus' humanity, the voice from heaven served another purpose, one that was visible in the spirit realm. It was a call to war. It was a challenge to Satan. It was a heavenly throwdown. The baptism of Jesus was a declaration of war. The cross was the victory of the war. It is finished. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in this declaration. God the Son is commissioned for spiritual battle. God the Spirit empowers Him for this battle. And God the Father gives His endorsement of the sinlessness and the deity of His Son. And God declared war on Satan in Mark 9, Mark 1, 9 through 11. How do we know this was a declaration of war on Satan? Because the first battle is fought and won immediately. Verse 12, And immediately the Spirit drove him to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. John the Baptist, the forerunner, foretold 700 years before the coming of Christ. He never married, he never owned a home, he never had a job, he never interacted meaningfully with society. He was the last Old Testament prophet in the spirit of Elijah to proclaim repentance in the spirit of all the others, to proclaim repentance because of a coming kingdom. He was the only Old Testament prophet to predict that Messiah was coming. And you ever wonder that... uh, 
why Jesus said he was the greatest of any man ever born? Because he was the only Old Testament prophet ever to predict Messiah was coming and then be able to go, and there he is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By the way, remember that the heavens being torn open and the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus was a private event in the spirit realm. But there was one other witness, John the Baptist. John 1.32, And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him. John the Baptist introduced the world to Jesus Christ, just like Isaiah said he would 700 years earlier. Why is this here? So that you will believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that you will believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that only by repenting of your sin and coming to the one and only Savior can you have life with Him and life everlasting. We do not have a blind faith. We have more evidence than we possibly know what to do with, don't we? Let's go to the Lord and thank Him. Our Father, you could not be clearer. Your word is perfect. Your son is perfect. Time and time again, you told us that Christ was coming. You told us that a forerunner would come to announce the coming of Christ. It happened just as you said. Fulfilling the words of Isaiah, fulfilling the words of Malachi. How glorious a God you are that you do not demand that we have blind faith, but you give us ample evidence that we might place our faith in the Lamb of God who comes to save the world from sin. And Lord, now as we humbly approach the the table of communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, we think on the reason for the birth of Christ that 33 years later or so he would willingly go to the cross, that he would willingly become the sacrifice for our sins so that we too might enter into the kingdom when he returns. We ask you, Lord, now to receive our worship, the humility of our hearts, our lowliness, as we remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.